Hello, welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome back to our co-host and my fellow committee member, Professor Alison Leary. Hello, Alison. How are you this week? Hi, Rachel. I'm really well, thanks. Good. I'm sure another busy week for you as well, Alison. Yeah, and it's only Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, lots on this week. Well, thanks for finding the time to join us again today. During the pandemic, our attention has been focused on hospitals. We've become used to seeing hospital admission rates for COVID. But what's the situation outside of hospitals, closer to home and in our homes? This week, we're joined by two special guests to explore service pressures and the nursing workforce crisis in primary care and in community settings. Ellen Nicholson is a member of the Steering Committee and the previous chair of the Royal College of Nursing General Practice Nursing Forum. Hello, Ellen, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be here to talk about general practice this morning. Ellen, you're working at NHS Resolution. What's your role there? Thank you, Rachel. NHS Resolution is the litigation arm of the NHS, so it's an arm's length body. So at NHS Resolution, I am the safety and learning lead for general practice across England. So the role involves looking at the claims that come in. So obviously, when something goes wrong within the NHS, a complaint is made, and that may or may not turn into a claim. And my role is nothing to do with the litigation side of it. It's very much to do with looking at the themes and the trends and feeding that back to the clinicians back in general practice. So what's been going on and how we might improve patient safety and also workforce safety as well. And that's, Ellen, you're coming from a background of general practice nursing? So, yes, I've been working within the general practice nursing field for I think it's around about two decades now, but I've had a career that's moved from primary care to secondary care to community care as well. So I've almost gone around the circuit and gone back and round again, which kind of gives you a good perspective, actually, of how the pressures affect each sector. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and we'll we'll talk a bit more about that as we as we go on. Sue here was a member of the District and Community Nursing Forum. She's a district nurse by background and also has worked at HEE. Hello, Sue. Good morning. I see that from your bio on the forum webpage that you have a portfolio career. Can you tell us a bit about that portfolio? I certainly can. I left Health Education England, where I was a senior nurse for the Southeast region in November and decided I wanted an opportunity to explore different roles. So I'm currently working with the RCN and their student committee. I'm also working for the Simcom Academy, which is a simulation academy where we facilitate training of people using actors, especially around communication. And I'm also working with a local university in Hampshire and hope to have other exciting opportunities as I go forward. Thanks, Sue. And, and Sue, I know that comes on a sort of background of many years as a, as a district nurse. When the media and politicians talk about healthcare, they always head to a hospital. Yet so much healthcare is delivered outside of hospital. Could you tell us a bit about the the breadth and the depth of care being delivered by nurses in community settings? I think it's amazing how much people do in the community. All, All aspects of nursing care, all diseases, from children to end of life, it's all there in the community. People live in the, in their homes most of the time, so that's where they're looked after a huge amount of the time, but nobody ever realises it. As you say, we always focus on hospital care. Ellen, you've kind of said that you've been round the circuit of community, primary 
care again what what's your perspective on that real breadth of of work going on in the community settings and and why it's not recognized I think it's important to highlight that primary care and by that I mean both general practice and community care really is the bedrock of the NHS and our kind of healthcare service and it's the setting where 90% of patient contacts are actually seen so when we see people going to visit hospitals actually that's only you know a small proportion of the care and healthcare that actually happens and I, I do strongly feel that actually general practice and the community are very much overlooked for the breadth of service that they provide. And from the diversity perspective of the work, it's a broad church, essentially. You see everything and anything that comes through the door within general practice. So it could be a child coming for immunisations. It could be somebody who's having chest pain, who hasn't um, gone to accident emergency. It could be somebody with a leg ulcer. It could be somebody who's recently had a baby. So there really is a huge breadth. It's everything and anything, really. Sue, what do you think has been the impact of the pandemic on community nursing and district nursing in particular? Do you think there have been any positive changes? One of the committee of the District Nursing Forum actually said that their managers have had lots of time to think of some really new and innovative ways of working, which is really positive, except that a lot of staff are tired and need a kind of period of restoration before they tackle new ways of working. So I think there probably have been some positives. I think people have probably thought much broader about using technology, about doing video calls to patients. But I think they've had to be even more creative. I think community nurses are always quite creative in the way they work. And they think on their feet and they think really quickly about how they can solve an issue and a problem. So they've probably had to do that even more during the pandemic. And I think for some patients, they've probably thought, well, we could manage without a community nurse. But I think for an awful lot, they've still needed staff and staff staffing levels have probably become even more unsafe than they have been because there's just not enough people to do everything. So you're right, we talk almost every week on the podcast about the the crisis in the nursing workforce. And a lot of the time we, you know, again, we have focused, I guess, on, on acute care or rather on care in hospitals. But just tell us a bit more about how that crisis is really affecting nursing in, in community settings. I think one of the things is that you don't have nearly as many bank and agency staff in the community. So staff are having to do more and more things themselves and they become even more unwell and they take time off. And so it's this ever increasing circle of pressure. Paperwork's not completed, assessments and care plans, you become quite task orientated because you just think about what needs to be done rather than being holistic, which is just not how people in the community want to work. I think staff are trying so hard to doing everything, but even patients are telling staff, take your time because they notice how stressed and stretched staff have become. I think there's probably an awful lot more that could be done with technology because some people have got some really great technical solutions, but some of the notes, some of the assessments that have to be done just really create more and more time consuming pressures. And I think the other really big problem is care packages. So if social care is struggling to get staff, this has the knock on effect, particularly on community and district nurses. So patients get less visits from, from care staff, so therefore the community staff are having to take over. So I think that whole knock on effect in the community is making it worse. That's a real safety issue, isn't it, Sue? I mean, the, the RCN is campaigning on safe and effective care, but what what would that look like in the community? I think that's probably one of the real difficulties, because how much is enough staff in the community? Because people tend to measure the number of visits we do, not the complexity. 
So it's it, there are so many more things in the community to take into account. There's hours of operation, skill mix and competency, as I say, complexity, not number of visits, the capacity to meet the unplanned care needs, so blocked catheters, bandages needed renewing, end-of-life patients suddenly catching to the end of life and needing more symptom control, admin support, travel and non-patient facing time. Some some staff can travel miles and miles in a day. Others are in, in a town, so it gets stuck in traffic. That takes time. Factoring in things like on-the-day sickness and emergency carers leave, the level of technology that's in use. So there's so many things that we need to take into account when we have safe staffing. And it is, I think it's a really complex thing to measure. And Alison, I know you're doing some work with the Queen's Nursing Institute on just on this, aren't you? Looking at staffing levels in the community and, and trying to, I, I imagine, address some of the complexity that Sue's just, just talked about. But, but maybe you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of workforce modelling, it's it's one of the most complex workforces we've we've ever dealt with. It's just because of the range and, and the complexity of what people do. We did find some interesting things. We've been modelling it for about a year. We know what drives workloads, so multiple comorbidity, a large population over the age of 85, social isolation and deprivation and poverty are also things that are driving community nursing workloads. So not just the need for interventions. We found that district nurses in particular felt they were leaving work that they considered most important left undone. So things like end of life care, that went up from two, less than 2% in 2015 to I think 36% in 2021 so we've actually developed rather than a staffing model which is which is very difficult and complex to do we've actually developed red lines for the community so sort of benchmark things you must not go below and we're hoping to publish those in in a few weeks actually they're just going through Q&A's process at the moment. Sue that sort of concept of care left undone and it's one that there's quite a bit of work done on you know again in 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 hospital settings, but is it one that you recognise from the community setting? Oh, definitely. And I think the more junior staff often will go in and just do the tasks that they're asked for. And because they've not had the supervision from more senior staff, often don't even notice what they're leaving undone. And that's the thing that's kind of really concerning. And I don't think they do it for any reason apart from the fact that everybody just rushes from one thing to the next. Ellen, you described a little earlier really clearly about sort of primary care, particularly being the front door in, into health services. How much has primary care really been impacted by the pandemic? Oh, it's been impacted hugely. We heard earlier there's been a, a move to more remote consultations and there's been a lot in the press about kind of the benefits of remote consultations, whether they work or whether they don't work for patients. And there's been a perception, again, that general practice has been closed. In reality, you know, it's been open for the whole of the pandemic. There have been remote consultations. People have been brought in to see a clinician face to face. So we've had things like hot hubs and cold hubs, a hot hub being the COVID kind of related care and the cold hub being, you know, the normal everyday type of general practice scenario where somebody might need to be seen by a clinician because it can't be dealt with in a remote consultation. And by remote consultation, I mean both telephone triage and video consultations. Both have been running simultaneously in general practice. On top of that, obviously, general practice has stepped up 
and has managed much of the COVID vaccination programme over the last year. And that's put an extra burden on general practice. Obviously, you only have limited staff within general practice. You don't have extra resources to bring in so many bank and locum staff. As with the community, you don't have so many of those. I mean, they are there, but you don't have so many. So if you are providing a vaccination service, it takes away from your everyday work, which might have impacted on appointments for public, really. And as you say, the sort of primary care really stepped up with the with the vaccination programme. But I think there's also been further calls on on sort of primary care and community services to support helping manage the demand for urgent care and and I know the 10 point recovery plan which was developed last year thinking about the recovery of urgent and emergency care highlighted the role of primary care and community services in helping to manage that demand how's that working through the system is it working through the system do you think Well, I think it goes back to what I said earlier. General practice and community already see 90% of the patient workload. So I think it's a false perception that, you know, general practice and community are going to help to manage that urgent care because we are already in that position where we are managing the urgent care. And actually, you could turn it around and say, actually, we are keeping people away from urgent care by being seen within general practice in the community. So I think it's it's it might well be policymakers not necessarily understanding how out-of-hospital care actually really does work. I think that's so important, isn't it? And how can we get them to understand that? So as you said earlier, we see, you know, our health ministers actually visiting hospitals, visiting vaccination centres, but actually we need to see them out in the community. I know the Queen's Nurse Institute has had the initiative where, you know, MPs have been invited to sit with the Queen's Nurse, but I think we need to do that within general practice as well where you have the policymakers actually sitting with clinicians in general practice, actually understanding the complexity of the work and also the pressure of the work. I mean, within general practice, it's very much around a model of 10-minute appointments. And if you had, say, six 10-minute appointments an hour and you multiply that by eight hours of work, plus all the paperwork, plus the referrals, plus the kind of looking at results afterwards, you're looking at kind of around about 10 hour days, possibly. And if you look at that, you know, on a on a weekly basis, day after day after day, you know, you, you've got 60 hour weeks, and you actually find that your staff, general practice nurses, and the associated staff and the GPs, they tend to get very fatigued. And again, as we heard in the community, they may well miss things or forget things, because we're only human. And I think we have to bring human factors into both these scenarios, people get tired, and they get worn out. Yeah, I mean, from a safety perspective, fatigue fatigue is the enemy of safety critical work. Fatigued people are more likely to make mistakes and errors. So it does really sound sensible to kind of look at that. When we think about general practice, Ellen, we, I think a lot of people think about general practitioners, uh, doctors. Can you tell us more about the role of nursing in general practice? Oh, I'm more than happy to, Alison. I've been talking about this for many, many years. So within general practice, people tend to abbreviate general practice to GP. And we talk about GP land and then the emphasis is very much around general practitioners. So nursing is the second largest workforce within general practice. And there's around about 23,000, slightly over 23,000 nurses across England working in general practice. 
the numbers have been going down again. They did kind of reach a point where they were a high point of 24,000, but they've started to dip again. The work of a general practice nurse depends, really. So you have general practice nursing who tend to see the comorbidities, the kind of the asthma clinics, the diabetic clinics, the hypertension clinics. We talk about childhood immunizations and cervical cytology, so smears. And you also have nurses who work as advanced nurse practitioners or advanced care practitioners who may well be prescribing nurses and they're seeing and treating patients in a similar way to a GP. So it's on the day coming through the door and you're not quite sure or they may be doing the telephone triage. So you've got slightly different scenarios. And underneath that, you have your health support workers, your healthcare assistants who are helping with the kind of hypertension clinics, helping with the kind of chronic management of patients on a day-to-day basis. Ellen, most GP practices are sort of run by the partners who are generally the general practitioners in the practice and and they're the partners. They kind of run the practice as as a business. Are the practices where some or all of the partners are nurses? Yes, you're right. General practice is generally run on an independent contractor basis and the majority of partners are general practitioners across England. There is one solely nurse-led practice within the UK, unfortunately only one, and they employ GPs because you have to have a GP as part of your kind of workforce within general practice for the contract. There are nurse partners. One of the forum chair, Joyce Pickering, is a nurse partner in her practice, but it's generally not a common thing that you have nurse partners you have kind of practice manager partners you have pharmacist partners as well in the NHS long-term plan there were partnerships brought in and the partnership model was for GPs and non-medical staff working in general practice as well but the uptake of that hasn't been that fantastic I mean that was the model that our forum chair used to actually become a partner. Why has that uptake not been been great do you think? I think it's a multitude of reasons General practice, we we talk about GPs, don't we? General practice nurses quite often feel quite devalued and invisible. They are employed by an independent contractor and may or may not have protected learning time. They work pretty much in isolation within that practice. So it's very much an autonomous role, but actually it doesn't necessarily give them the opportunity to get out and to acquire those leadership and management skills that you might need if you are actually going to be a partner in a business. And I think there's a certain amount of conditioning as well. You know, I'm a practice nurse. Do I actually want to become a practice partner? Is there the opportunity there? So I I, I do, and this is my personal opinion, I do think it is still quite a hierarchical model within general practice. And we've been hearing recently that our health secretary has talked about general practice being taken over by NHS Trust. So actually, maybe much more of a cooperative model might be a better way forwards for general practice, where everybody's involved in that kind of management and leadership. We've seen the um, additional roles replacement scheme, which is a lovely title, but actually means kind of pharmacists, physiotherapists, social prescribers actually becoming part of the workforce within general practice. And actually, as the workforce expands within general practice, having much more of a cohesive, inclusive model may work better to the patient's benefit as well as the staff benefit. Looking towards a a model like that, but reflecting on the on the current model, because, as you say, nurses and other staff working in in practices are employed by the practice. And thank you for that term of independent contractors. What's the effect of that on terms and conditions, including pay, which is sort of in other areas of the NHS, is is regulated by sort of agenda for change and, and so on. The GP contract, when it's updated each year, will put 
a pay uplift in there. And it will talk about the global sum and it will talk about, you know, a pay uplift for the staff. But nursing in general practice is not paid on the same terms and conditions as the NHS. So it's not generally agenda for change. One of the GP practice might decide they want to follow that model, but they're not obliged contractually to do so. So what we hear from our members in the forum is quite often they only have statutory sick pay. They may not have maternity pay. They may not have annual increments in line with inflation for pay increase. And actually their pay can flatline quite quickly. And as I said, they may not have access to time away for continual professional development or access to training, education and development. And it really is down to the kind of the partnership as to whether they're forward looking and investing in their staff and their workforce or whether they're slightly more concerned with kind of making the books balance and looking at the budget. Ellen, we talked about the impact of the nursing workforce crisis and community nursing. I was just wondering how it's affecting primary care and general practice nursing in particular. I'm reminded of a a survey that we did with QNI last year. And I have to say, it was the worst workforce experience I think I've ever seen in 15 years of doing workforce research. I was really quite surprised at how devalued people felt in, in that survey. What could we do about the nursing workforce crisis? So there's been a fellowship programme running where we have been talking to student nurses about having a career in general practice. And it's a really good career to have. As I've said, you know, you've got the diversity within the workforce, you've got kind of the autonomous role. Um, It's a broad area to broaden your expertise in nursing. So it's a fantastic clinical background. The thing that detracts from careers in general practice is, as I've said, you know, the kind of terms and conditions, the pay that may not kind of meet the NHS standard of agenda for change and the lack of access to CPD. You've also got an ageing workforce. So it's predominantly female. A number of kind of general practice nurses are coming up towards retirement. And what you find at the moment is a lot of people, as I said earlier, talking about kind of tiredness and fatigue. And we have members who are choosing to retire early because, you know, after two years of the pandemic, And the focus that's been on general practice within the press, there's been a lot more abuse of the reception, of abuse of the nurses. And people at the end of the day, you know, they're tired and they actually think, I don't need this kind of pressure on my life at this point in time. So as I said earlier, you know, the numbers are around about 23,000 and they've been dropping slightly over the last few quarters. And we can track that in NHS Digital. They keep a tally of the work on a monthly basis and you can see that going down so I think we really need to tackle the terms and conditions actually and to give the nurses in general practice parity with their colleagues within the NHS and whether that's a gender for change or whether that's a different type of contract that gives them that surety something has to happen at the moment the health select committee have called an inquiry into general practice to look at all of these type of nitty-gritty issues and how we're going to go forwards and they've closed the submissions for evidence And that should start running sometime this year. And obviously the Royal College of Nursing and the Forum have put in submissions to talk about the difficulties within general practice as they see them as well. So Ellen talked there about nurses in general practice choosing to retire early. Is that something that you're seeing in in community nursing, district nurses as well? 
Yes, I think it is. I think the last two years have just proved to everybody how difficult life is and they need to have a more of a work life or a life balance. So yeah, there are there are people leaving. And I think the other issue is the student placement. So people coming into community nursing as a kind of first first destination isn't happening as much as we'd like to. And if students don't get a really positive placement in the community during their training they are less likely to actually end up with having a career in in community nursing. So our restriction to community placements because of pressure on teams and because of the pandemic and um, being able to go with nurses in their cars and got to go to patients' homes has actually had an effect as well. You know, I think very often thinking back, people would talk about, you know, gaining experience in hospital before going into community. Do you think that's still something that people look to do? And if so, why? Yes, they do. And and it's like, why? Because especially now with the, with the new training, which has much more of a community focus, but it's like, there are some of the skills you learn in hospital. Why would you, you don't need those skills in the community because the community is different. So having a first destination community nursing post is absolutely fine, but it's the pressure on the teams to support a newly qualified nurse. And I think that's the problem. It's, it's just this kind of perfect storm that is developing with everybody in the community because it's so busy and with the fact that people couldn't go in cars patients didn't want so many people in their homes the number of placements dropped dramatically during the pandemic so the paid placements there were very very few in the community and then post times when we were kind of more opened up during the pandemic still teams were very very reluctant to have students so actually getting students to recognize that the community was a great place for having a career some of those have been lost in the last couple of years We've seen that in the modelling as well. We asked people if, if community was a good a good first destination. And I think when people get preceptorship, it, it's a great first destination and would lead to rewarding careers. But with the current workforce crisis, it's very hard for newly qualified, newly registered nurses to get that kind of support. And one of the things that we asked people to consider in the modelling was should the workforce skill mix include what we call rookie factor? So people qualified less than a year. In, into the skill mix numbers. It's usually thought of as registered and unregistered, but in a lot of other industries, we think about newly qualified people as well and them not making up more than, say, 20% of the workforce so they can get the appropriate support to develop professionally. And lots of people were very keen on that, actually, because a lot of people that are very well established in the community feel they are not giving people the right support to go into the community. And that's a real shame, I think. Yeah. And things like there's the increased workload, there's sicker patients and with the social distancing measures and things like offices where you can only have so many people in the office at a time. And offices are quite small, often for the community anyway. Maintaining team morale and supporting a student to be kind of part of something is really difficult. And yet it's the best place to work ever because of your autonomy, the relationships you develop with patients. It's just a fantastic place to work. But I think the last two years have made it so much more difficult. And even things like the team that you work with, because of the way people have been working and not going into the office because of social distancing, I think that's made it really much, much more difficult and much harder for everybody at the moment. Ellen, I was just wondering about the situation in general practice in terms of general practice nursing being a first destination career and and the support that students might get. So as part of the general practice nurse 10 point plan, which was an initiative to encourage nurses to think about general practice as a first destination career, there was a priority around student placements. 
And we have increased the amount of placements within general practice for students. And as as my community colleague Sue said, if they have that experience within general practice, they're more likely to consider it as a first choice career. But what we found is actually it's very much reliant on the general practice to decide that they want to have a student. So, again, it comes back to that kind of ethos within a practice. Are they a supportive training practice or are they less of a supportive training practice? And there's also a disparity in the amount of financial remuneration practices receive for students. So, for example, for a medical student, the fee is a lot higher than it is for um, having a nursing student in general practice. So I think that is a detractor for some practices, particularly if they're looking at budgets and kind of keeping those financial models in place. I'd just like to say, I mean, I think it, it's absolutely right, this idea, the fact that we've got medical students are paid more and physician associate students are paid more than the kind of nursing and AHP students. Unless we actually start to get that every single day is a student day or hashtag, yeah, hashtag every day is a student day, we're never going to start solving our, our crisis. We need to make students feel completely welcome in our community so they come and have have jobs with us. And I know it's really hard and everybody's really struggling, but I think we need to change the whole narrative about students and make students feel valued, welcome, and actually just part of what we're doing. Because unless we do, we're never going to get things to be any better. And I feel really passionate about that's the way we've got to go forward. We know we've got an ageing workforce, but the students are there. We've got more student nurses in training at the moment than we have for the last five years. But we're not going to keep them unless we really look after them when they come out into our settings. Because they they start off really wanting to be there, but it's very quickly they, they change their mind. And kind of first and second year's attrition is really quite high. And often it is because of their experience during placement. So I think that if the community and general practice can actually make it that it's an amazing place to work and they're really looked after, cared for and learn things, then we're going to do better. I absolutely agree with Sue there. I think, you know, we really have to change the narrative around the students. They are our future. You know, they're, they're the future workforce. They're the future who are going to be looking after people like us as we grow older. And we really have to change the perception of how students are seen within these settings. They ha- It has to be proactive. It has to be positive. And we have to be supporting them in their development because they're supporting us in our development as well. It's, it's interesting, though, is it? That whole value thing about the value of the different professions starts really early, doesn't it? It's terrible. It's, and, it's, and it's especially noticed. I think it's noticed more in general practice than anywhere else, just because it's more obvious because there's only one or two students of, of each discipline. We just need to value students right from the beginning and have the opportunities to do to educate them in practice as they need to be. Sue was talking about kind of practice educators and within general practice, obviously, you have your CCGs and soon to be your integrated care systems. Under that umbrella, we do have training hubs and there are practice educators employed by the CCGs and ICSs who look out for the kind of education and support of students and nurses within general practice. And they're specifically employed by those organisations to look at the kind of continual professional development. Again, it comes back to funding. There are only a few of them and they have to cover the whole workforce and look at the students. So we could do with more of those as well. Sue, you've talked about making things better for students, but if you had a magic wand, what two or three things would you do now to improve conditions in community nursing services generally? 
So can I magically work up a workforce that actually really does meet all the needs of all the patients? So therefore, we can look after our patients every single day as well as we'd like to. We would have mileage paid so that actually staff didn't feel that they were paying to go to work. So we'd have the mileage sorted out, especially now petrol is £1.50 a litre. Time for development of our staff, time for clinical supervision, time for professional development, time for students so that we could really teach them to be our next workforce. My last thing is to everybody recognise that working in the community is the most amazing place to work. And the money follows the patient. So actually, we get more money in the community to look after people better. When, when we first did the District Nursing Today survey, when I did the first analysis of it, I could not believe that district nurses had to pay to come to work. They didn't get, they got a cap on fuel and things like that. It was incredible in terms of working conditions. So Ellen, I was just thinking, if you had the same magic wand, what two or three things would you do to improve conditions in general practice nursing? Firstly, I would look at the allocation of time. So obviously appointments within general practice are generally around about 10 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, but I would kind of extend them into 15 minute appointments. I know we talk about kind of, you know, seeing lots of people within general practice, but sometimes we're not using our time particularly productively. If we extended those appointments from 10 minutes to 15 minutes, we may well find that actually we could tackle the patient queries and patient health issues in that extra time and stop the kind of reoccurring appointments happening because we just had that little bit more time to use. So I think that would be a a positive service development, actually. I would, of course, say that actually we need to really seriously change the pay terms and conditions for general practice nurses because it's a revolving door. We attract people in because it's a kind of fantastic role within general practice in the community, looking at a range of patients. And yet they get tired and they get frustrated because they can't pay their bills or they don't have sick pay or they don't receive maternity pay. If you've got a predominantly female workforce who may or may not actually choose to have a family at some point, that really does impact. I would look at the students and how we could attract more students into general practice. So every practice is a student practice. And I would look at kind of opportunities for the continual professional development, not just looking at the clinical skills, you know, around diabetic management, around asthma management, around prescribing, but really around training our workforce in how to use remote consultation properly, how to use video consultations, how to manage risk in general practice, how to manage practice as well, kind of those management leadership skills. There are some courses out there, but they're not widely available to the majority of the workforce who are in general practice. I think I'd probably summarise your two ones as investment in and valuing of the nursing workforce in in primary care and in community settings in a way that we don't see at the moment, sadly. It would be nice if we could actually have much more of a rotational programme for our student training. There are some kind of community-based programmes for students, but actually if there was a kind of, you know, 50-50 emphasis on hospital care and community care and they rotated round and saw all of community, because actually at the end of the day, this is about our patients, isn't it, and our patient pathway. And a patient isn't just seen in general practice or in the community or in hospital. They have that pathway that goes around all three of those areas and into social care as well. So I think we really need to be much more inclusive in how we train our students, but how we work with our workforce now. 
Ellen, you mentioned earlier the sort of development of ICSs and the greater integration of care. Do you think that does give an opportunity for that sort of development? Absolutely, it does, because you're including your local authorities and there's much more of a push to kind of integrate with social care, integrate with general practice. And where I am locally, they are all very much involved. I'm in one of the areas where there's the first wave of the integrated care system. So I'm, I'm actually quite privileged to see the integration between the kind of acute provider and the community and how the local authority is putting people into the hospital so that they can help with delayed discharge and getting people out of hospital into the social housing. And you've got the general practitioners there from the general practice. And, you know, you've got that kind of cohesive model, but, you know, it takes time. I'm sure we've got lots more to say, but we have actually come to the end of our our podcast. We'll be back next month and we'd love to know what you'd like us to talk about. So tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. We'll do our best to cover them in future episodes. But for this week, thanks to our special guests, Ellen Nicholson and Sue Hill. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for having me. It's been a privilege to talk about nursing in general practice, which is a fantastic career choice. (laughs) Just one more plug. Um, And thank you to my co-host, Alison Leary. A pleasure as always, Rachel. Thank you. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. 